It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Just like the 2016 U.S. election, bad faith actors are emerging online. They're promoting disinformation about the 2020 presidential race. Brian Stelter is chief media correspondent for CNN. Another problem in the lead up to November, he says, is that people find their news in wildly different places. Everybody trusts some form of media, right? It's, it's not that people don't trust any media, it's that some people trust CNN and others trust Fox. Some people trust Salon, and others trust Breitbart. As a result, we're so fractured. Today, the future of journalism in a fractured environment. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from an Aspen Institute Society of Fellows discussion reception. As election day gets closer, what's the state of newsrooms in America? What lessons were learned in the 2016 campaign? How are technology companies combating the spread of disinformation? And what about local newsrooms? How are they surviving layoffs? Are they becoming more diverse? Vivian Schiller leads a program at the Aspen Institute that examines the role of media and technology in society. She's the former president of NPR. She moderates today's conversation with Brian Stelter, Joanne Lippmann, and Richard Gingras. Lippmann is an author and journalist who served as editor-in-chief at USA Today. Gingras is vice president of news at Google. Their conversation was held in late February 2020. Here's Schiller. I want to just do a little scene setter for you about where things stand at the moment at the intersection of journalism in this all-important election year. And I'm going to apologize in advance because this is a little bit of a downer, but I <laughs> promise you our panelists are going to cheer you up. They have nothing but good news to report, right? Okay. So um, a few, uh, just a few statistics just to frame this a little bit. Uh, let's talk about local news because, you know, politics is uh, not just about the national campaigns. It's about um, local campaigns and, it, and, and even national politics happens at the local level. Since 2004, more than 1,800 local print outlets have shut down in the United States and at least 200 counties have no newspaper at all. Um, <coughs> making things worse, according to a recent poll, over 70% of Americans believe their local news outlets are doing very well, thank you very much. And therefore, uh, or maybe uh, related or unrelated, only 14% of them have paid or made a donation in the last year. Let's turn to trust. Um, trust in news media is below 40% in recent years, and it is highly polarized. According to a recent survey, um, political politically active Democrats, 90% of those people say journalists are ethical. Among politically active Republicans, only 16% say journalists will act in the best interest of the public. We are finding, 16, one in six. We are all finding our news media outlets of choice, or as we sometimes call it, news media outlets of choice. Um, it doesn't necessarily help that the president calls uh, many journalists enemies of the people, and frankly, the current uh, Democratic frontrunner is no fan, a very vocal <laughs> critic of media as well. Into this toxic brew is the rise of misinformation and disinformation. Now, fake news, which is a term we don't like for a whole bunch of reasons because it's not doesn't really explain much. This is not a new concept; it goes back millennia. But it has been fueled uh, recently, um, in recent years, by the massive reach of all of the platforms that we access on these guys, and also the ability to narrowly target uh, information or paid posts um, to narrower and narrower groups. Um, last week, a Pew study came out it, and which revealed that 82% of Americans say they are either very or somewhat concerned about the potential impact of made-up news on the 2020 elections, um, they are not wrong. Last week, we learned of Russian interference campaign, Russian interference again in the uh, Democratic primaries as well as the general election um, for candidates on the left and the right. But it is not just foreign interference. It is uh, local homegrown interference as well. In fact, uh, some of the misinformation coming from 
major candidates. I am an equal opportunity complainer about misinformation, so I will tell you that both Trump and Bloomberg are purveyors of serious misinformation on social media, which is not fact-checked um, in ads by Facebook. Lest you think this is just global, um, it is not. The uh, Oxford um, did a review of social media manipulation campaigns by governments and political parties. It exists in 77 zero countries. That is up from 28 countries in 2017, with Facebook being the top venue where disinformation is disseminated. Look, it, it is, that is the problem. The fixes are not easy. They are very, very complicated. Any most uh, seemingly obvious remedies come with unattended consequences like squashing free speech, um, and that is not a, a good thing. So we are going to turn to our uh, panelists to solve all this for us. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, I'll, since you're sitting next to me, I'll start with you. So Pew, sorry, I'm quoting Pew a lot, but they do very good work. Pew did a survey recently of people who work in or close to the tech industry. And one of the most startling statistics was that half of those respondents, again, people working in tech, a lot of them in this region, uh, expect technology to, quote, weaken democracy between now and 2030. So talk to us about what Google's responsibility, how you see Google's responsibility to strengthen democracy in the US. Yeah, well, first of all, a, a, a couple of things here. I, I think when we toss around the word technology, uh, we should recognize that, you know, as I often think, technology has value, but it doesn't have values. Right? It doesn't come embedded with values. Uh, when we talk about the impact of technology, at core, what we're talking about here is the internet itself. Right? The internet put a printing press in everyone's hands. And we, as humanity, have taken full advantage a lot of that has been wonderful, but a lot of it obviously is, is problematic, and we can, we'll talk more about that. I'll come back to that, I'm sure. Uh, but let's get to the specifics of, of, of Google's role. We are in the middle of this vast ecosystem called the Internet with our with product. Too many you are the search. Internet. <laughs> well, yeah. indeed, you, you can go around the world, and depending on, for instance, Yes, in many parts of the world, people will go to Google not knowing what they're really looking for. They just want to go to a website and they come to Google. On the other hand, you can go to certain parts of the world like India and find that people think social networks are the internet, uh, where the web is far less developed. So there's no question uh, that these overlays of technology can, and, and certainly you know, people have different levels of understanding of what they are. Um, but we are at that, at that uh, key locus point with Google search, and, and, and we, we, of course, have to recognize and do that we have a significant degree of responsibility. Now, we take that uh, uh, in, in action in various ways, and uh, I will just hit some top lines at the moment because we may want to go deeper. One is, for instance, how do we address uh, challenges of misinformation uh, in our world today? which for us can be everything from understanding what's going on with um, you know, coordinated nefarious attacks with robotic systems, which are happening by bad actor states and bad actors in general. Um, how do we continue to evolve our own approaches with Google search to make sure you are, as best we can tell, seeing authoritative results for whatever question you might have? What kinds of things can we do um, from our position in the ecosystem to enable the next generation of journalistic expression. And that too is a, is a broad subject unto itself. So all of those are dimensions that, that are important to us. And I'll, I'll, I'll just you know, close at this point because some people say, well, why is that important to you? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I could say, well, we have high-minded ideals and we do have high-minded ideals. But interestingly, with Google, and the reason I'm there and have been there as long as I have been, is I think that Google is quite unique as a company in this environment, just on the nature of its business. Um, you know, the, uh, the core of our business to this day is Google Search. Billions of people use it every day. The relevance and value of Google Search is based on there being a rich ecosystem of knowledge out there. So it's in our interest to make sure there is that ecosystem of knowledge or you wouldn't need Google search. And same is true with our advertising systems that many publishers use. 
uh, we wouldn't make any money from that if those publishers weren't successful in this open environment of the web. So we have, you know, I can talk about high-minded ideals, but we have business interests that are really tied to the future of the open ecosystem of the web. And I'll go beyond that one further step and tell you that our business is biggest and most successful in open societies. Not closed societies, open societies where there is more free expression, where there's more small business, where people are, you know, are, are, are actively involved in their society and their economy. So there are lots of business reasons where I can bring back to why this is important to us. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for the moment. We'll come. We'll, uh, thank you. Uh, we'll we'll come back to that because, of course, even in the topic, there is the subject of search. Is search results are driven by an algorithm, and of course, Google also, which can can surface stories, some stories and not other stories. And in addition, of course, Google owns YouTube, which is a whole other beast, which we can come back to. Um, Brian, I want to um, turn it to you. Um, you know, representing all of media um, <laughs> is the. Uh, is the media, and of course there's a problem with just saying the media, because what is the media, but um, let's say fact-based uh, media. Reality-based. Yes, reality-based media. Doing enough, and you can speak to CNN or, or the other media that you, of course, observe and report on, is it doing enough to combat misinformation and disinformation Yeah. Uh, for, during, for, for this campaign? First, I would define our terms, you know, misinformation. Uh, if I send you the wrong way down a dark alley by accident, that's misinformation. If I send you down there on purpose to screw with you, it's disinformation. <laughs> That's good. Right, and, and disinformation is the, is the biggest problem in, in that. There's always going to be mistakes in journalism, but the goal is to get a little more right every day. What we have are all these bad faith actors promoting disinformation and promoting really what's, what's not an alternative view of the world, but an alternative reality of the world, an alternative universe of information. And I think that's ultimately what's broken in our U.S. politics. You know, if we broaden out beyond politics, there's a lot we can say that's optimistic about media. Even, even local media, which is struggling, there's little green shoots coming out of the soil all over the place. But it's mostly outside of politics, right? Our politics is so broken and poisoned, and our conversation about political media is so broken. Because everybody trusts some form of media, right? It's, it's not that people don't trust any media. It's that some people trust CNN and others trust Fox. Um, some people trust Salon, others trust Breitbart. And so... As a result, we're so fractured, and it seems like we can't ever find any common ground about media, but really that's about political media. And, and I would say that beyond politics, there's a lot that's working, there's a lot that's right. When there's a tornado warning in your town, you damn well do believe the local meteorologist who's telling you to seek shelter. I think in those emergencies and those crisis situations, uh, the news media it functions really effectively, right? And, 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 and yet in the political sphere, no. The answer to your question is we are not doing enough to counter mis and disinformation. Um, it's great that CNN's hired a, a full-time fact checker to, to fact check Trump and the Democrats. It's great that uh, PolitiFact and others are on the beat full-time. It just feels like fingers in the dike uh, to me. It just feels like the, the flood is so overwhelming uh, that I think ultimately a lot of people just in their daily lives are confused about what to believe. And, and to me that signals that we are not doing enough to stand up for a reality-based debate and a reality-based conversation. You're supposed to cheer us up, by the I way. Know, so I know, I know. <laughs> but if we get outside yeah. politics, I think there's a lot to be cheer yeah, yeah. cheerful about. I think inside the political fights, you know, the, 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 that's what's broken to me. Yeah. Well, I want to continue on that, on that theme, um, um, Joanne, and, and, and let's talk about, you know, the role of the media in these unprecedented times. Uh, without a doubt, no matter what, where you are on the, on the political spectrum, you can agree that norms that, you know, time-tested norms, good, bad, or indifferent, have changed radically. And um, there is a much more um, freestyle, let's say, uh, form of communication that, come from, that comes from the White House and from, and we're seeing it coming from the Democratic campaigns. Some argue that, that, that the news media is has not really kept up with how to report in these unusual times, and that they fall back on the well. We have to have a period of being balanced, and for everything we say, we need to find somebody on the other side. What do journalists or how do news organizations need to think about changing their style of reporting for this era? Yeah, thanks, Vivian. So, so first of all, 
journalism has always been and needs to continue to be that practice of shining the light in dark corners. Wherever those dark corners may be, dependent, not dependent on who is in political power. I don't think that needs to change. I also think there's a little bit of a misnomer in your question. I, I actually don't agree that we have fallen prey to this, um, you know, one side, the other side, one side, the other side. I think that we've gotten over that, uh, that, that that was something that, yeah, we saw a little bit too much of um, a few years ago. But, but I do feel like we are shining the light. I think there are many other issues, though, that are very serious. And if I can just like pick up on what Brian and Richard were, were talking about, just as a, um, on, this, on the information front, I do want to just make this one point that it, the spread of this, this, this disinformation is incredibly nefarious. And it does impact how we read, view, and intake um, our media. So, so just as a for instance, um, there was a study that was done at the MIT Media Lab that found that false news, in, uh, news stories, fake news stories, travel six times faster than true news stories. There was a study that was done overseas that found that looked at what is the emotion that spreads most virally um, love, online. Love, love, joy, <laughs> outrage. Oh, so close. <laughs> So when you think about it, um, and, and you think about how are we getting our media, we're getting our media um, very often, we're getting our news via social media, and you look at the platforms, um, and particularly I'm going to pick on Facebook, um, but if you look at the, at, the, at the business model, as Richard said, technology itself doesn't have any particularly bias uh, necessarily. Technology doesn't have a values, does it can have bias, it doesn't have values. <laughs> But, the, but if you look at the business model of those who are providing and, and building those businesses, they're built, particularly a Facebook, is built on virality, right? If the more viral the information is, the more people it goes to, then it can advertise against that. Um, and it is better for its bottom line. It's better for its business model for us to spread information. But what are we incentivized to spread? Information that is false, information that spreads outrage. And so I think... When you have um, an ecosystem that does that, and then you add in this disinformation that we are being fed, what it leads to is, and I think what it is intended to lead to, in fact, is, is chaos, chaos, right? Yeah. It's basically we are, um, it, 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 it leads to you sort of, even news media that you might ordinarily trust, even you may not trust anything that you're seeing. Or you may say, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing these impeachment proceedings with my own eyes, but then I'm reading these other headlines that are spinning it totally differently. What am I supposed to believe? And that, that I think, is the, the real heart, the, the heart of what this issue and is. And yeah, I guess your question, Vivian, about let's change how the press operates in this chaotic environment. If there are these disinformation campaigns all the time, then journalists may have to behave differently and act differently. You know, if, um, if indecency is the norm, then journalists have to stand up for decency. And that may not always like, be comfortable, right? Because it, it, it makes it sound like you're a political actor when you're not. If, if, we're move, if we're experiencing creeping authoritarianism, journalists can stand up for democracy without supporting a party, but for supporting the country. Right, and those are those are conversations we weren't but, having five years ago. But your right? name, Trump, that wasn't on the table. The, the the danger, and I think this is something that all news organizations are struggling with right now. Honestly, the danger is taking on the mantle of the enemy of the people. Right, we've got a president who is calling us the enemy of the people, and you've got people who, um, uh, you know, you've got some reporters who are sort of taking on that mantle. And and I think that's something we really need to avoid because we're not the opposition party. Uh, we need to be the people who are keeping us straight and honest. And it, and it can become very difficult. And there is a generational divide there, too, where right. younger right. reporters, younger journalists are like, wait, we got to go out there. And you know, they're on a crusade, and they would like to be activists. And it's a different model. Isn't there room for all of that in the media, as long as it's properly labeled? Like, Isn't there room for opinionated point of view outlets? And then there's room for just straight down the middle as well? I think there's room for, room for I, what I think where we get into trouble is where, there, where what we're not doing very well is distinguishing one from the other, distinguishing opinion from factual reporting. Mm -hmm. yeah. Isn't some of the crux of the issue, though, I think what something you mentioned earlier, Brian, which is the very idea of challenging untruths and saying, actually, 
these are the facts, yeah. can appear to be a political act. It does. It looks like it. Yeah. It's awkward on camera to say the president lied, or if he's not lying, he's delusional, and that's worse than lying. Yeah. Those are uncomfortable things to say on TV. I hate talking that way on TV. Right. I think it's irresponsible not to, right? I think it's irresponsible not to call it out when it needs to be called out. And yet, we have to reckon with the fact that even if CNN anchors are calling things out, and you know, NBC might not, and sure, as heck, Fox News is not going to. So we're in this environment where it only just splinters more as a result. And I think what we can do in this environment is encourage people in the same way that we say, eat local, you know, get your, get your news local. Like, try, try to go back to those sources that... If, that, you, if you have local news. If you, well, if you have <laughs> local news, yeah. But it's also the same thing like when you find a barber or, you, you, or, or a stylist. You don't want someone who's brand new on the job. You want someone who's been doing it for decades. It's, it's the same way with news. We gotta help people guide them back to old-fashioned sources that have been in the business for a long time that at least have a higher chance of getting it right. Richard has something to say. Okay, higher chance of getting it right. I, I think we need to be careful. At, look, journalism, there is no so CNN turns 40 this year, so I'm a little yeah. biased. <laughs> Journalistic expression is as many and varied as any other types of expression, in truth, right? I mean, we all have these ideals. I've worked in this business a long time and with journalism a long time of, of journalism, the role of journalism being to give our citizens the information they need to be informed citizens, right? I think it's hugely valuable, but we also, shouldn't kid ourselves and not recognize that we've got a vast panoply of media organizations practicing journalism in many and varied ways, right? I mean, one thing I thought you were going to mention when you mentioned the MIT study, there was an MIT study, another MIT study apparently, um, after the 2016 election that looked and said, well, you know, was, how much was, was, in a sense, fake news or disinformation a key role in the election, particularly as practiced by bad actor states? Mm. And they said, no, not really. The real issue was partisan outlets in themselves spewing, obviously, political spin on all dimensions. That's not limited to one side of the political, uh, political ideology by any means. And vast arrays of partisan media outlets, again, across the spectrum, which is a particular challenge when here we are trying to find how do we build a society based on a, on, a, on a large middle ground of people who can accept commonly understood facts when you've got dimensions at either end of the political ecosystem telling people what to believe? You know, the sad truth of the internet, love it as I do, is it has spawned millions of voices and millions of sources, and it has played very well to our own human weaknesses to prefer affirmation versus information, right? We, will rather, we would rather consume what buttresses what we want to believe or what is our particular interest. Uh, it's sad, but it's true. Um, and so, yes, this does, I think, require um, a, a very deep degree of soul searching on a societal perspective in terms of what is journalism, how should it be practiced, how do we set up the right role models. But I don't buy the notion that historically all was good and now all is not. <laughs> right. It's just right. that it's much more, it's just vast now. But, let's, but, but Richard brings up the really, I think, the core issue here, which is we live in a society right now where we don't agree on facts. And I do think that's what we need to try and get back to. And that is, I would love for us to tonight solve for that. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> hey, let me, and let me jump in on that, because here too, this has been an interesting journey for me, because I've been in digital media for 40 years. And I, for one, have always believed that our better angels will win out. And I like to believe that to this day. But this has been a daunting Still? last. <laughs> we, we better. Challenged. We yeah, have yeah, to. Yeah. Um, you know, um, that our, that our better angels will win out. But I'll, oh, where I was gonna go is so, you know, starting like a half a dozen years ago, for instance, we, we at Google uh, started to enable this effort around the world of fact-checking. Mm -hmm. Not fact-checking by news organizations, many news organizations do that, but fact-check organizations which create fact-checks that were, to us were important because if someone is looking up, do peach pits cure cancer, then we would like to have something <laughs> pop up there and say maybe think twice about right. this. And that's important, and we should all do that. But here's the other deep challenge that we run into. Mm. You know, as I, as I, as I, I say, okay, do fact checks, and then you kind of go through and say, well, how do people perceive whether that fact is indeed a fact or not? 
You know, when we go back to human reason, here's the sad and unfortunate thing about human reason. We think human reason is some innate ability on our part to understand abstract concepts, and it's not. Human reason is entirely tied to our social constructs, right? We will believe and accept what we think is in our best interest to believe. The simplest way to state that is, you know, if the head of the tribe tells me the moon is green, mm -hmm. then I'm going to look up and say, hmm, yeah, I guess it is because I'm afraid I might not get a leg of the calf, right? That's the nature of our species. So how do we, how do we emerge out of that? My own, you know, if I want to be optimistic, it's all about our leadership in many ways. It's about leadership in news uh, to create a future of journalism that can help people understand facts, that can help people understand how to think, not tell them what to think. It's about leaders of, of technology institutions like ours uh, who are willing to take on the heat and try to do the right thing in their space. And it's certainly about moral political leadership as well. And I will not get into any political ideology in these discussions because that's not simplistic. That's, that can't be tied to one end of the spectrum. But Richard, let's not. stick with Google for a second since you sure. are here with Google. So where, what does Google, so Google has tremendous influence over what we, mm -hmm. what we see and what we believe, both because of search results which are, which are ranked algorithmically. And, and I, I know you don't work directly with YouTube, but YouTube is a Google, a Google company or an alphabet company and, and has, had a, has a profound impact on particularly young people who get a lot of their news from video. So I'll, 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 let me just try to address that on a, on a, without too deep on, on, on several points. Um, you know, clearly, there's a lot tactically that can be done, that should be done, that is being done. One is simply in the area of our own internal cybersecurity is are we doing our best to understand these robotic networks of fake sites mm. that are being used by political organizations in nefarious states and, and take them out of the equation, right? Can we adjust our policies? For instance, we did announce a change in our advertising policies that disallows political advertising, the use of micro-targeting, which I think is extraordinarily important, right? Micro-targeting make, makes it very from, from easy. And it's distinct Facebook, by the way. Makes it very, yes, for a politician to basically speak out of both sides or, frankly, a thousand different sides of their <laughs> mouths, depending on who they're talking to. I think those are important steps. And then the last, which gets to your point, is how do we in our job, say at Google Search, and you could reflect this in the YouTube, do our best to surface the most authoritative answer. I don't ever use the word truth. That will just get me into trouble. I've, you know, there, first of all, there are very few issues that are where there are true facts, but then there's a ton of perspective, particularly in the world of politics and news. Yeah. Um, and clearly, it's not our job to be the determinator of what is acceptable or unacceptable free expression. But how do we surface the right, the best possible results for any given query? Right, and we continue to evolve how we do that. But there's some natural tensions there because ultimately, um, you know, is, you know, Google search, for instance, and you could extend this to some degree to YouTube, but it's a bit more narrow, is the role of Google search is to help you find anything that's in that world of expression, legal expression within the domain that you live, within the United States. Different, for instance, in Germany, where there are different laws. Find anything. It doesn't say only find the good stuff. Right. If you want to find what's in the darkest corners of the internet, Google will help you find that. And journalists recognize that as an important thing. Mm -hmm. right? So there is that fundamental tension. If you want to find information about peach pits as a cancer cure, then you will find it. Uh, obviously, for the most part, we want to do the right thing and surface the authoritative information. <laughs> but it gets very tricky and very political very fast. And I'll give you one singular example in the United, I'll give you several. One is waking up on a Monday morning and having you know, the, the, the administration you know, complain about the bias of our algorithms. That's always an interesting challenge wherever we're working. But the other, um, it, it mentioned YouTube. YouTube made the decision, appropriate decision, to take InfoWars down off of YouTube. InfoWars, I think, is his, classic a case of misinformation, disinformation, nonsensical information that you could probably imagine. And there are many others, right? And that caused a tremendous controversy within elements of the political spectrum that said, how dare you, as, a, as such a massive and dominant platform as YouTube is, 
take away their opportunity to have a voice on your platform. And by the way, we'll launch, you know, a Justice Department investigation into your efforts. So these are incredibly complex, incredibly difficult issues. And I, 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 the only I can say, it's one of those situations, you I, we were talking about this earlier. There's almost no perfect answer for us because someone on some side of some issue, or some spectrum is gonna say, you got it wrong. I think, uh, or yeah. you'd say, you didn't reflect my view of the world. Well, <laughs> one, of the, one of the major issues that I think that leads again to the confusion among the users, if you're, you're talking about your policies, if you go back to those of us who are consuming, is there is an inconsistency in um, applying uh, these different policies. And as, um, again, as a, as a, an, as a for instance, uh, Facebook has said that it will not check the political content, it will not fact check the content of political advertising. So any politician can say anything they want and it will go in an advertisement on Facebook. At the same time, Facebook is fact checking information on the coronavirus so that you don't see misinformation on the coronavirus, which is very helpful. But it's also incredibly inconsistent because mm. the vast majority of users who are not in a media bubble reading about all of this don't understand that they're applying the policy one place, but they're not applying it in another place. And I think that leads, again, to more of this lack of trust and the confusion about what to believe. And these are you know, interesting points. And I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm not here to defend social networks. But when it comes to truth and advertising, <laughs> Noam Chomsky came to Google <laughs> a couple of years ago and someone asked him about fake news. He says, I find it really interesting that we're talking about fake news when we're talking about a media ecosystem that is largely supported by advertising <laughs> that inherently is, is spin. Right? And if you look at political advertising, political advertising has always been thus. And every media organization in the United States accepts political advertising and doesn't fact check them. So I, I just, you know, again, these are, these, are not, I, 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 these are not simple questions to answer. Um, I, I wonder Actually, with, we yeah. did. I, we, uh, so I ran USA Today. And we did um, reject ads that had falsehoods in them. Well, I was oh, just no, no, don't so get me wrong. CNN. Uh, and so, uh, yes. Yeah. I was just thinking about that racist ad that Trump ran before the midterm election. It was a caravan ad. CNN rejected it, and then NBC rejected it. And then Fox ran it a dozen times, and then they were embarrassed enough to reject it. And I'm just, you know, I'm thinking to myself, are we going to end up in an environment where there's two alternative universes of ads, right? Where the CNNs of the world will reject your racist ad and the other channels will run it. It, it just feels like everything we're talking about takes us further down this, 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 this path of alternate of, realities. Of alternate realities. Absolutely. You know, and it makes me wonder if, if you're 20 years old and you create this insane, disgusting Infowars site and it's banned by YouTube, do you ever come back to YouTube? Like when you're 40 and you've grown up and you've realized you were wrong? Like this, that's what worries me about these bands, even though I'm, look, Alex Jones said that I drink children's blood. Alex Jones said that I run the banks. He said nasty, the, the most horrible things. And then of course I get hate mail sent to my house for it. So I'm not, you know, I don't want to try to support Alex Jones, but I wonder like what is the, once you're banned, how do you, is there ever an unbanning? There are all these questions that ultimately things are changing much more quickly than people can process. And the inconsistency, right? I think, that and Joanne the mentioned is... We all learn in school how to process advertising. Yeah. We know about TV advertising, but I don't think any of us know how to manage radicalization engines. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Women's History Month is an opportunity to honor the incredible contributions women have made. You can find some extraordinary women leaders on AspenIdeas.org. Hear from Katie Sowers, who made history this year as the first woman and openly gay person to ever coach an NFL team at the Super Bowl. Jennifer Doudna is a biochemist at Berkeley, and she's the brains behind the gene editing tool, CRISPR. She's leading a conversation about CRISPR's ethical and societal consequences. Discover more about these women and others on our website, AspenIdeas.org. That's AspenIdeas.org. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Vivian Schiller. I want to turn uh, now to come, come back to local news because it's, it's such a critical issue. It is where 
it is the form of media that people say that they trust the most, right. and yet it's disappearing. So, Joanne, you ran a network of a, a national network of, of news sites when you were with uh, USA Today and Gannett, and now Gannett and McClatchy and others are on the brink of 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 uh, collapse. So, where do you see the promise in local news? Yeah, so um, I will give you the, the downside, but then I'm going to give you the positive. <laughs> okay. Okay, so the depressing part first. Sorry about this, guys. But um, I joined Gannett as chief content officer in 2015. And at the time that I joined, uh, we had 92 going on 110, because we were in the middle of an acquisition, newspapers with 4,000 journalists. Just last week, just last week, uh, or two weeks ago, uh, they closed an, uh, the merger of Gannett and Gatehouse. There's now 260 newspapers in this news organization. And they announced that they have 2,500 journalists for 260 newspapers. So we have seen the steady erosion of local news. Gannett has not closed a single newspaper. It has tried to keep those local newspapers going to its credit. It's just that they are, there's fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people to staff it, which means that you're not getting the kind of local news um, that you got uh, at one time. And I think that, you know, this is incredibly damaging. You're seeing, you know, we're not covering our local school boards, our local zoning boards. We're seeing, like, um, our local city halls. Uh, so corruption and, and, um, and, you know, other misdeeds can, can kind of run rampant. And I think it's a, it's a huge, huge issue. But I will say, I have to say on the positive side, and, and Brian, you made a little bit of a reference to this, the green shoots. Yeah. When I was at Gannett, and we had newspapers, we had these 110 newspapers, aside from USA Today, every other newspaper, we had the Detroit Free Press and the Cincinnati Inquirer and the Des Moines Register, Arizona Republic, but also like dozens and dozens of, of small community news organizations. And the reporters who staff them are the most creative people I have ever met, bar none. They would come up with ways to get at the news. They would come up with ways to monetize um, their reporting in ways that people at the New York Times aren't thinking about. And, and it was really encouraging that these people care so deeply and, um, uh, and, and are so motivated in all the right ways that I do hope that we're going to start to see some new business models emerging from right. this. Uh Mm. I just want to ask Brian, Brian, why, why is this so hard? I mean, we're all reading the headlines that the New York Times has is, is been wildly successful, Wall Street Journal successful, Guardian's had a lot of great success, uh, Washington Post has great success. Why is this, why are the national newspapers seeing, really going from strength to strength lately, and not the, not local. Well, Richard, you go first while I think about the answer. Okay. Because, <laughs> because, frankly, because frankly, the underlying business models are different. Um, you know, I, I'm actually optimistic about local news. It's going to take time to get there. Uh, but you also have to understand what happened to local news, right? Uh, as I said, that, you know, we have the Internet today. Well, interestingly, in 1985, the Dallas Morning News was the Internet of its community. You went to it for everything, right? Everything. And you didn't subscribe to it because you wanted city council news coverage. You, want, you subscribed to it because you wanted the movie listings and you wanted the classifieds and you wanted the sports scores and you wanted all of that stuff. Guess what? And the business model was supported by four key categories, classified advertising, department store advertising, automotive advertising, and supermarkets with the discount ads, discount coupons, right? Our behaviors have all changed. We don't go to newspapers for jobs anymore. We go to online classified sites. Department stores barely exist. Supermarkets market to you in very different ways. So the very business model evaporated with the internet is the truth at the local level, right? Different from the New York Times as a national brand, but at the local level it evaporated with the internet because our behaviors shifted and the revenue went with it. And the truth is the chains were great and hugely successful chains. They didn't become chains because they all wanted to be great at local news. They became chains because it was a frightfully big advertising business. Mm -hmm. And the margins were even better when you put several hundred of them together, right? 
And so I think actually the future is in a sense the reverse of that. And that's where we're seeing the green shoots mm -hmm. is independently owned, locally owned, for-profit, non-profit entities who are serving their communities. And we're seeing very good examples of this and we're trying to nurture them as well to create, in a sense, those playbooks, those models that the next generations of entrepreneurs can follow. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an organization in Canada that's been very successful locally and we've taken that model and that's what we're working with with McClatchy, for instance, in Mahoning, and that's what we're working with them in Longmont, Colorado, which I don't think has been announced yet. Uh, that's, you know, so can we, can we identify how those can work such that they can be replicated? Yeah. Another example here locally is Berkeleyside, you know, which has done a superb job of developing a news institution for Berkeley such that we said, you guys are smart. Let's figure out if you can actually replicate that model in Oakland, in Oakland yeah. right? And so we're working with them too. And it's not, I, I don't mean to give us credit here. But I think our, our whole strategy, however, has been if we want to see that future news ecosystem, then we have to create the models that others can follow. And we have to create the underlying technological uh, systems that others can use and follow. But there are going to be hundreds of different solutions or hundreds of different communities, right? So like you said, some are nonprofit, some are for profit. I keep thinking that, you know, I grew up in a town called Damascus. There was one reporter, her name was Susan. Uh, when Jeff Bezos bought up all the papers around the Washington Post, Susan went bye-bye. Uh, and I keep thinking that Susan now, she's probably not going to be a full-time salaried staffer for a paper. She's probably going to be doing it just out of passion. Yeah? That's, well, it, it in a really small because town. where we're seeing success on the for-profit side, mm -hmm. it's also news organizations that are recognizing that the value, for their, for the value of what they offer the community isn't just the city council coverage. Like, obituaries still mm -hmm. matter. In a sizable community, classifieds at a sizable community still matter, mm -hmm. where I can trust because it's, you know, I'm not, it's not someone from Craigslist that I don't know coming from 50 miles away. Right, that community coverage of the high school and sports events matters. Yeah. And that's what people will engage with. And if you do a good job of that, mm. you know, the, the, what I mentioned, Village Media in Canada, they're profitable in the cities that they have launched in and they're launching in more because they have a successful solution that recognizes that it is engagement to a community and providing the community with the information they need beyond the accountability journalism, which yeah. is most important is key to the success of, of, of those efforts. I think part of the issue is something you touched on at the beginning, Vivian, which is education and making sure the public knows what the state of local journalism is. It is, you know, I think everybody in this room knows about the state of local media. A lot of people don't. A lot of, a lot of people don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they don't know. And that's a real issue. It's and that's an education here's, here's issue. Here's the weird truth in that, hmm. right? Um, and I've, I've just seen, in the last month, I saw more data on this. Again, 1985, newspaper is the internet of the community. Yeah. You got it because of all these things. You know, half the community subscribed right, because of all that, these right. services. Yeah. It wasn't about the news per se. A lot of people didn't read the front section. And so if you actually look, like we at Google, we send 25 billion visits to news organizations around the globe every month. It's a massive amount of traffic. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I can tell you it's in the low single digits of the interactions with Google search. Right. Right. And the, and, and, and the Reuters Institute came out with an analysis uh, uh, just recently that said, the truth is the number of, the percentage of people who are interested in, quotes, serious news yes. is a surprisingly modest expense, <laughs> yes. modest percentage. Yeah. I want to bring it back to the campaign 2020 and also to the, to the, topic of hope. Yeah. If you could each just, just uh, what do you think is promising in 2020 that has not existed in, pa in past campaign cycles mm -hmm. that gives you hope about that is better now to give people the information they need to actively participate in this democracy? Uh, you want me to start? Oh yeah, go for oh, it. Just look, it's the best of times and the worst of times, right? People do have more access than ever to the information that they need in order to make informed decisions. It's chaotic and confusing, but Every year, more people are online and more people know how to surf uh, in a way to get to that information. Um, we can only lead the horse to water. We can't make him drink, right? But I, I do think that access to information only improves over time. And that is fundamentally a reason that, that I'm hopeful. I also think there are lessons learned from 2016. You know, believe it or not, there really are, I, I think, in newsrooms. 
lessons learned about being less reliant on polling and to be more in touch with voters on the ground. Those cliches are, there is a lot of truth um, to, to those cliches, and I think there have been those lessons learned uh, from, the, from the past campaign. And I also, look, there are days following the 2016 election, I thought there'd be significant numbers of journalists um, in jail. I thought there could have been severe rollbacks of libel laws in this country. I thought a lot of news outlets would have their credentials revoked. I'm just, you know, just think about worst case scenarios for a free press in this country. We're not even news. close. They're, you're not in jail. We're not even close. <laughs> <laughs> we are not even close to the yeah. worst fears yeah. uh, of, of press advocates when it comes to the Trump administration. Yeah. Now, is that because, you know, you know, there's a lot, we can get into that separate issue. But <laughs> the press is actually incredibly vibrant at this moment in time. Uh, given the threats against the press. So I just, you know, that when I'm feeling really down, that's what I tell myself. I'm that's not good. In jail. All right. Reasons for hope. <laughs> you're not in jail. I love that your optimism is we're not in jail. <laughs> um, At least not yet. Uh, uh, two things. One, and I'm one, not being audited. I mean, just, no, think about it right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. All of these ways the government could impose power on the press. We did think that libel laws would be cracked down We thought libel laws would be cracked down on. We did. Yeah. And, and not yet. Um, uh, what, what we have learned since 2016 actually is uh, definitely about over-reliance on polls, which turned out to be way wrong. Um, and that boots on the ground, it's, it's not just a cliche. I mean, I, I actually did a post-mortem with the USA Today Network, which is all of the Gannett papers. Mm -hmm. The morning after the 2016 election, I got them all on a speakerphone, basically. Um, and uh, to talk about, because our local reporters in our local papers in Tennessee and Louisiana and, and deep red Florida, they were at these Trump rallies and they were seeing what was going on on the ground, but then they would turn on their TV and they would see the talking heads and they'd see the polls all saying Trump doesn't have a chance and they would discount what, what they were seeing. Ah, and and wow. the message yeah. that I gave to them was, hey, you guys, if you see on the ground in your community something that is very different than what you're seeing when you turn on your MSNBC, I want to know about it. Like, we need to know about that. We need to understand. You need to also trust your gut, trust your reporting. And that is something that I'm hopeful that we're having. I do see, you know, some of the national news outlets are, are, are taking this more seriously about, about embedding people, not just sort of parachuting in. I think that's really important. One other issue which we didn't get to, but I do want to mention, briefly, which I think is really important, is we need more diversity in our newsrooms. Um, I, on the, uh, just on the gender front, um, there was research done that shows that 75% of the people who we quote as experts are men. Um, it, there, was a, there was a study that was done globally that found, uh, of all English language news sites, that found that 77% of all people written about, considered newsworthy, quoted, were male. And these researchers concluded, and I am quoting, they concluded that women are routinely marginalized and symbolically annihilated in news coverage. And that's because the people who are making the news decisions, what is news, who's newsworthy, et cetera. Um, and um, that's just for women. If you then go and drill down into people of color, uh, if you go into um, you know, uh, ethnic minorities, you see that we are not really reflecting our communities and need to do a much better Is job. Is it getting any better? It's getting any. Do you no. see any? Yeah. Looking. Oh, all right. So not a hopeful moment. <laughs> but, but, but it will. But an important one. I think if we, think if we raise the issue, yes, 100%. We'll right. do something about it. Right. Richard. So I'll, I'll speak a little bit more to, to, in a sense, to data. I've, I've got a team that's working on to, uh, adapting our technologies for tools for reporters in the newsroom. And one uptick that we've seen that I, I'm, I'm hoping just to continue to drive and see it evolve is newsrooms uh, going deeper in their statistical understanding of what's going on in the world. Right? And this is something we're also trying to fuel just by bringing data sets to the fore from the government of like what, is, what statistically is going on in the world such that we can give people context. I think that is what is so missing from so much of what we consume from the media environment is a sense of context. Is it important or is it not? I'll do this in real short strokes is how do we, can we get to the point where we don't have people say in a farming community in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley going to the polls voting based on maybe an unwarranted fear in terrorism 
versus a better understanding of what the graduation rate in their schools or the crime rate in their communities or the pesticides and or whatever the issue might be is can we give them a better understanding of what's important and what's not so that can be reflected by the informed citizenry in the decisions they make when they go to the polls and then hopefully as i said can we have thoughtful guiding leadership that can move us forward without okay, just playing to what we want to hear. Right. We're going to your questions. I was curious about particularly the journalists, if you could speak to the fact that um, journalism Twitter is such a closed loop. <laughs> and, um, and it actually goes to the point that you were mentioning before. There have been studies that like male journalists retweet other men at much higher rates than right. being even inclusive of their female colleagues. Oh. And can you speak to how journalist Twitter actually is potentially a problem for fomenting groupthink amongst a peer set um, because I think that you know it is they are the like heaviest users of that platform to a large degree and I'm, I'm just curious about your thoughts about that and how you yourselves engage First of all, I think you answered your own question. I think it, I actually think it's a huge problem because it does, the group think is a big problem and it's particularly, journalism Twitter is actually especially damaging in my view, and you may have a different point of view, on when it comes to politics. Um, because um, it is, that study that, that you referenced it was about political journalists specifically that found that male political journalists only retweet other male journalists and that female journalists are not retweeted, so you're 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 sort of in a in, in sort of a little bro loop there of your <laughs> of your a bro loop of, of your sounds gross. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it does. Uh, it also it, it it impacts our thinking way too much because um, and and it's very hard not to get sucked into it because we're all on Twitter and we're all. Um, engaged and and you know Brian, you've got I don't know how many million oh, followers. I don't know. They're and, mostly bots. And <laughs> but uh, but I but I do think it's it it is uh, I I do think it's a it's a problem that I, sometimes I try and just like not look at Twitter because I don't want to be swayed by this singular yeah. point of view. Uh, you know the head of CBS News PR has been calling me during this, and I texted her. I said I'm busy. Uh, and you know she's panicking, right? Because the debate did not go well. The CBS moderators are getting trashed on Twitter, and so she's trying to spin it. And I understand the Twitter conventional wisdom, the consensus, the way it hardens within minutes. It is damaging. I absolutely agree. Uh, and uh, but but it's all in what we do with the tools, right? I met my wife on Twitter, so I can't totally <laughs> on Twitter. It's all in how we use the tools. I use Twitter to find more diverse guests and to get introduced to people that I wouldn't otherwise know and then put them on TV. So it's, it's all in how we use the tools, um, but journalists have to be better about using the tools. I at least think there is a lot more awareness than there was two years ago of Twitter is not real life. Like that slogan has taken hold, which is great. But I think we need a fundamental rethink of how, what our relationship is to these tools. Are we being used by them or are we using them for our own benefit? You know, there's this meme that goes around on Twitter of, of my face with, Chris Cuomo and Jake Tapper, and it has us on an airplane, and it says, why are these men on Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs? <laughs> and, and so, like, I just think about that, right? Like, so how do I disprove that? How do I, how do I prove I was never on a pedophile's plane? And what am I gonna tell my daughter when she sees that meme right. someday? We need to have a fundamental rethink about the relationships to these platforms, that that shit, excuse me, can be spread on the internet, mm -hmm. and, and like, I, you know, I'm well known enough that I can deal with it, right, and I have resources. Most people don't. And I just, that's something that I think when we think about the information needs of communities, that's gonna be a more and more pressing problem. I just wanna put that on the table also. It's like, that, to me, that's the darkest, darkest sides of these social networks that we haven't even started to grapple with. You know, the bots are bad enough, but then if the bots are at scale spreading that stuff and people don't have the resources to counter it, and what do we, I don't know what we do with that in 10 years, 20 years. I Let's don't know. go to another, another yeah. question. Um, but oh. you guys mentioned the consolidation of public media. I think that's particularly of interest pre-election. Um, one thing that comes to mind is the Sinclair Group, which is uh, buying up a lot of local media companies. And uh, there are a lot of videos that show reporters saying the exact same verbatim content um, that is potentially misleading. Um, I'll let you interpret that how you will. How do we begin to combat that when consolidation of local media might actually be helpful sometimes? I think it's really hard, by the way, to, from a public policy 
uh, equation to address consolidation in media when you have the internet itself. Uh, to be honest, to be very straightforward about it, right? I mean, you know, 40 years ago, there were, uh, you know, there were obviously, there were more approaches to regulation about consolidation. Could I own a newspaper and a television station? That stuff is all going away. To the extent there are any laws here or anywhere else in the world, it's going away. And understandably, because in a sense you're saying, well, you got the whole internet here. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't think there's a public policy answer to that challenge. I think an answer about Sinclair is exposure and actually shame. So yeah, I, I helped break the Sinclair story and that video made by Deadspin of embarrassing all those stations, it embarrassed the heck out of those stations. I had staffers leaking to me because they were so ashamed. That actually, look, that's embarrassing for them, feel bad for them. That's actually part of the solution. Like the spotlight, transparency on these things, coverage of these issues. Um, again, I, I think that's, it's not the entire answer, but it is part of the answer. That, you know, look what happened with NBC and Ronan Farrow. You know, the way that Farrow exposed what happened at NBC. Like that is part of the solution to kind of, it almost like, um, it starts to clean up the water. It's like a fit, you know, it's, I think that's kind of part of the answer, not the entire answer. I'm sure that worked at NBC, but. Oh, well, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah we, can, we can go out of the um, Let's go all the way to the back over there. Question for Richard. Uh, Google is obviously very good at statistical analysis onto AI. <clears throat> A question regarding your statistical analysis of Google News, which is a compendium. Obviously, you have many sources from which you need to select. And um, do you statistically analyze the impartiality of that selection? And specific question for some of us, there seems to be perhaps a disproportionate number of Fox News headlines. Do you analyze that? Mm. Are you sure you're being impartial or not? You know, <laughs> As I Over said, I, I, I get these questions from multiple dimensions. I, I don't like talking about both sides, but I guess both sides. Look, the, the, you know, in a sense, as I, I'll, I'll start from here. We have billions of users every day. What is important to us over time is to make sure we don't lose their trust, right? So it makes no sense for us to be biased in one direction or the other and we assiduously seek to do that. There is nothing in our algorithms, for instance, that either tries to determine, we know lots about our users. I can know whether you're a woodworker or not. Um, I, you know, all kinds of behavioral patterns. We assiduously do not do anything to try to understand the ideological leanings of a user. And similarly, with regard to news sources, we don't, like to, don't try to determine what the ideological position of an article is. We think that's a, just a, a, a wrong place to go. So we rank by many, many signals to try to be authoritative. We leave others to judge. You know, what I always say when people ask me to defend the algorithm, I say, look, it's important for us to both be clear about our principles, and there's a lot of public documentation about our principles, be clear about our methods, and also let third parties analyze the results and judge, right? And I think that has largely worked. Now, I can see analysis. I've seen reports on both sides saying, oh, we're biased this way or that way. Typically, where I find all of those analyses break down is how, uh, is how those different research efforts have partitioned the sites themselves. I remember one that said we were left-leaning um, uh, and biased against conservatives. And I looked into the data, and they had labeled The Economist as a left-leaning site. Now, I, <laughs> And the BBC is a far left-leaning site, so it obviously depends on one's perspectives. Uh, but I, so far, I am comforted by the fact that folks who have looked at it thoughtfully and across the board don't see bias in our algorithms. Um, but, you know, again, there's, everyone is going to look at it and have their perspective. I, 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 can, I get as many complaints saying too much Fox News as, as much as, like, why do you have the lion-ass New York Times in your, in, in your, in your, in your results? Mm. As you're talking, I'm thinking so much about values. And do we have them anymore? Do the journalists have values anymore? Do our television broadcasters have those values? Because we've gone into this, this time where what will sell takes a precedent. And I grew up, um, I don't want to say what year, but you'll all be able to figure it out. When, when newscasters like David Brinkley and Walter Cronkite, they were, we relied on them for truth. And I valued journalists like 
okay, they are going out to find the truth. And now, when I watch the news, if I watch CNN, and then if I watch Fox News, I get two parallel stories. And it's, your, it's sorry, the, what, and your question is? My question is, where did we lose the value of truth? Where do you feel that you are navigating in what you're doing in a place where you're having to, where nobody values the truth? Brian, you should. You oh, should I didn't want to go first, but I will, because <laughs> CNN was mentioned. Yeah. Uh, in the political sphere, it's broken, right? It's broken. But when TMZ said that Kobe Bryant had died in a helicopter crash, nobody wanted to believe it was true. But millions of people turned on CNN and Fox and NBC and ABC to see if it was true. The ratings quadrupled in less than an hour, which only happens when something really, really, really <laughs> bad happens in the world, right? Uh, but they did, because people, people saw it on the web or saw it on their smartphone, didn't know it was true, didn't want to believe it, and they wanted to see if it was true. And as long as we keep doing that on the big news days when we get it right, then people do care about truth. And that gives me confidence people do still care about truth. And Fox got it right mostly that day as well. There were some mistakes. A lot of outlets make mistakes all the time. But I think when, the, when, when, when real news and real bad news happens, there is that ethos to get it right and to be careful. And on those moments, it's not about profit either, right? Because we're not taking commercial breaks uh, in those moments of crisis um, or, or those moments of heartbreak. So that's what ultimately you know, makes me think that, yes, there, there is an ethos of truth. And there are thousands of devoted journalists trying to get to that every day. I would just add that, that I think part of what you're talking about also is, is about clickbait, about the fact that, that so much of journalism is, is motivated by how many clicks can we get because then we're going to get more advertising dollars. And a lot of the consolidation that we're talking about in the news industry has been for that reason. Oh, if we can only get larger, we're going to make money and we're going to be able to compete for advertising dollars with Google. Well, there's no news organization, no matter how large, no matter how many newspapers you put together, that can compete on an advertising basis with Google. And so I do think my optimistic hope is that we're going to start realizing that the clickbait kind of crap stuff that you're seeing um, will dissipate because it won't make economic sense. And there's going to be a realization um, and hopefully a refocus. And what gives me optimism is also when I speak at J schools or at colleges to students who want to become journalists. And they all want to go into journalism for the right reasons. They want to shine the light on dark corners. They want to be um, at the forefront of, of helping to kind of understand the world. And I think that the, um, you know, that gives me hope that we're, we will get out of this dark place we're in. You know, things, things began to change even a bit before the internet when politicians realized that they could go beyond the mainstream behemoth press to their bases, right? And they began to do that with cable, and then it went beyond, obviously, to the internet. And that's exactly what politicians are doing. And to some extent, people in media play that as well. I think ultimately this comes back to what I said. I, I, it is my only optimistic hope is it, the answer, in a, in a sense, is in us. Uh, it's, it's in our ability, can we, can we hopefully see a generation of leaders that can look beyond those very short-term questions of how do I appeal to you right this very minute to some higher sense of ideals? But that's a very big, difficult question, right? As I mentioned to Vivian, and we were on the Knight Commission, on the Knight Commission, I, some, I can't remember exactly, I, we, we, I don't know the, quite the source of it, but someone posed this question, which I think is so poignant, is, is, is the internet to the First Amendment what the AK-47 is to the second? And what do I mean by that? You know, I, I mean, what I mean by that is this. We have a society that is ruled by laws, right? I can have free expression. I can own an AK-47, right? But the health of our society is driven by our norms. It's about rising above that and saying, yeah, you can do those bad things, but maybe you shouldn't do those bad things, right? And that's why I say in whatever, whatever part of we're talking about here, whether it's publishing, whether it's technology, whether it's government agencies, whether it's politicians, is we're only going to come out the other side, frankly, if we can have that higher level sense of, of what's important to our society as a whole, um, you know, such that we can lead forward. But right now, 
that's a particular challenge. You know, how did democracies survive in environments of unfettered free expression? And so far, the record of the last 20 years is they don't, right? We have elected in, in at least a dozen countries around the world, we have democratically elected non-democratic leaders and no small degree because of the aspects that we're talking about here tonight. So that's the pessimism and that's the optimism. Yeah. So I was going to say, so, our, so basically the closing message here is we are, you are your, we are our own best hope. And yeah, I don't know if that's pessimistic or optimistic. So thank you, Brian, Joanne, Richard. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Vivian. Joanne Littman is the author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Brian Stelter hosts Reliable Sources on CNN. Richard Gingras is Senior Director of News and Social Products at Google. Vivian Schiller is leading a program at the Aspen Institute that focuses on media, technology, and cybersecurity. Their conversation was held in San Francisco on February 25th by the Institute's Society of Fellows program. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The discussion was programmed by the Society of Fellows team. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.